0: Fantasy is a natural human activity. It does not destroy or even insult reason. For creative fantasy is founded on a recognition effect, but not a slavery to it. From an essay on fairy stories by J.R.R. R. Tolkien. I'm Nicholas Kotar author of fantasy inspired by Slavic fairy tales and seeker after the good, the true, and the beautiful. You're listening to Fantasy for Our Time. In this podcast, I discuss classic and new fantasy media, have long and involved conversations with authors and storytellers, and explore how stories can help us all live a better, more fulfilling life. And I thought I would talk about this... um, Something I've been thinking a lot about. You probably have read or watched uh, The Last Kingdom series on BBC it's, that's now also being shown on um, on Netflix. Now, if you've been following me at all, you know that I love that series. I think it's a fantastic series. The production values are very good. And by and large, for the most part, as far as I can tell, uh, outside of some uh, some clear preference for the pagan characters at the expense of the Christian ones. Uh, it's a pretty even-keeled show, I thought. Um, there was one episode, uh, sorry, there was one scene in one of the episodes in season one that I really didn't like. This was a scene of, of uh, I can't remember exactly who it was, but it was a Christian ruler of some kind, possibly even in the show, I think it may have been a, a, a clergyman, who makes a big deal when the, when the um, Vikings enter a church, he makes a big deal of Saint Sebastian and um, the icon of who of whom is hanging on the church. Saint Sebastian, for those of you who don't know, was killed by by being shot shot at with arrows. So so he's showing um, he's showing the icon of of uh, Saint Sebastian and saying, look at the power of our God. Our God was able to preserve this man from being killed. Uh, by arrows and then the Vikings then go on to say in the show well then what happened later and he did did he end up escaping from death and the the Christian says no he was he was actually uh, beheaded ultimately so the Vikings don't understand the point of the story and the the story plays kind of ridiculously and ultimately um, in the show they force the the character to to reenact the role of St. Sebastian, and if his God will save him, then they will immediately convert to the Christian faith, okay? Now, it was a weird scene. I didn't like it particularly because, well, for obvious reasons, but I actually started reading uh, The Last Kingdom, the book, the first book in the series, which is now up to book nine, I think, uh, where I started to listen to it on, on audiobook, and that scene plays a little bit differently in the book. It's actually King Edmund the Martyr now King Edmund the Martyr is a uh, canonized saint in both uh, the Orthodox Church and the uh, Roman Catholic Church. Um, so immediately the scene uh, has, has a lot of, has a little bit of a different um, feel to it because the, because Bernard Cornwell really portrays Edmund as an obnoxious, unpleasant guy who is at a disadvantage because he's about to get uh his his he's unable to fight off uh these marauding armies of Vikings, and he is holding court in his church, or I think it may maybe be a hall, and he's trying to to insist that the Vikings all become Christian before they even be before they even begin uh, peace talks now, and he comes off at as a, at a great disadvantage because he's obviously not in any position to talk to talk about conversion because they're about to destroy his army um, so he comes off as petulant as kind of annoying and he he makes this point about saint sebastian's icon and um when when the uh, i think it's not Abba, but um ivar the ivar the the boneless or something I, f- I forgot I forgot his name but he's an actual historical viking uh Curious to see the power of this God, uh, in all sincerity, then says, "Look, if you want us to convert to Christianity, um, strip, and we will shoot arrows at you, right? So just like the show, except slightly different because it's King Edmund, not some random priest." And all of a sudden, Edmund, again, who is a martyr in the in both churches, becomes afraid, very obviously. And tries to slink his way out of the situation by suggesting, okay, well, we won't insist on you getting baptized. Uh, we can just talk peace now. And then Ivar goes, no, no, no. You've insisted that your God is more powerful than our gods. So I want to see it in person. And predictably, Bernard Cornwell—not Korn will not being a Christian. Uh, the end of said King Edmund is rather pathetic. Um, he gets shot up with arrows and the whole scene is played for laughs. And it's actually quite horrific. Um, we are expected to sympathize with the Vikings in this book because everything is being explained or narrated from the point of view of a young boy who himself sympathizes with the Vikings, even though he's an Anglo-Saxon. But anyway, the way that this scene played out, it didn't sit right with me, not simply because I don't like uh, scenes where martyrs are are being made fun of, but because something about that scene in a historical novel, which, which historical novelists are very careful about being historically accurate, usually. uh, A lot of times, uh, historical fiction readers go out of their way uh, to check up on the historical veracity of of the events, and if somebody messes things up, then they'll actually take the author to task. So it's not like fantasy where you can just take a historical motif and kind of go crazy with it. No, they have to be pretty accurate. So I, I was curious, and I went and looked at the actual history and what we know about King Edmund and his martyrdom, and it turns out we don't know very much at all. What we do know uh, is that he was act- he was almost universally admitted to be a very brave man and his his army being defeated he actually seems to have a, this this isn't an, an, a, this is not a historical source it's his it's his hagiography which is of limited historical value um, he offers to basically uh, sacrifice himself for the sake of his people so he um, that's one of one of the versions. Another version basically has the Vikings kill him in a fit of rage because he refuses to uh, deny Christ, and they're very uh, clearly on a sort of crusade, on, on a pagan crusade against, against Christianity. Christianity being the effeminate religion of those who are not warriors. Uh, but in any case, what I took away from the historical, from what we know historically about King Edmund, is that the, the character of King Edmund is nothing at all like this rather effeminate rather um pathetic character that we see in Bernard Cornwell's book not only that but this setup where a character in uh 9th century England uh belligerently tries to con- tries to convert a whole bunch of vikings um for no real reason other than it's important for them to be part of the church or something and then ultimately to to be afraid of showing his Um, desire to die for Christ, this is actually a very weird and very modern um, insertion. Now, what what, what do I mean? If you're an honest historian, you have to take, at least partially, the um, points of view of people from that time period, or rather their uh, worldview and their opinions of the world, at least somewhat seriously. And if you read any primary sources from that time period, you will be astounded by the amount of faith people had, the amount of faith people had in God's, this is Christians I'm talking about specifically, in God's actual, um, very physical, active involvement in everyday life. They, even, even if King Edmund was going to die like Saint Sebastian, even if he expected fully to be martyred, he would never have paled or become afraid at the opportunity to show his bravery in the face of these uh, pagans. So something is missing. Something is missing here in this in this portrayal of Christians. And it gets even worse later on when, um, effectively, Bernard Cornwell starts to describe situations completely historically of monks and nuns actually raping children in. Uh, retaliation for the violence that the Vikings are perpetrating on the English. Now there is no evidence of this ever happening. It's extremely unlikely. In particular because if we consider the English Christian mission, uh, the first uh, missionaries to England were sent by St. Gregory the Great. And St. Gregory the Great, as I was recently recently reading in a new book that's about to be published called um, Age of Paradise, a very interesting book about the sort of rise of, of Christendom in the West and the fall of it after um, throughout history from the, from the time of Christ. Um, there was a really, um, St. Gregory had a very non-confrontational and culturally sensitive approach to conversion. He told his missionaries that they had to speak to the people in the language that they're used to, that they had to incorporate the the pagan symbols that they were used to and transform their meanings into new Christianized meanings. This is, for those of you who know, not surprising. This is the way mission has always worked in the Christian world, particularly in the early centuries in the medieval times, when the really successful missionaries, rather than uh, being some, uh, rather than destroying uh, the shrines and the religious objects of the pagans, although that did happen in some cases, in England it did not. What they end up doing is taking the existing uh, religious structure and reinfusing it with new meaning, with the meaning, with the Christian meaning. So this is where the whole Arthur legend comes, where you have Merlin as a representative of the old gods, peacefully kind of walking into the background and fa- and the magic that's that surrounds him fading, uh, with the coming of the of the uh, of the new Christian God. It's not so much a confrontational thing; it's a kind of end of one age and beginning of another. Another, it's also very interestingly captured in the the poem Beowulf, uh, where the writer, who is clearly a Christian monk, is writing with a with a degree of nostalgia and wistfulness about the pagan past um, of England, um, because he recognizes that there was a lot of beauty in there that could and was used uh, culturally within the new um, religion of Christianity. So this is a very different reality. Uh, historically, really, is very this is very different from the one portrayed by Bernard Cornwell. Now, wh- why am I talking about this? Because what's interesting is that along with this this sort of weird twisting of, of history uh, against the Christian witness, what ends up happening with some with a lot of these authors, including um, Bernard Cornwell, and this is something you see in season three of of the last um, of the last Kingdom. There is a denigration of Christianity and a kind of assumption that the Christian god is, is either effeminate or absent. While at the same time, there is a a clear preference and a clear suggestion that the power of the Norse gods, of the pagan gods, is real. And you see this very vividly in season 3, which is all about Skade, a, um, a seer, and her manipulating all the men around her and trying to, to basically... Uh, control events in england to get herself in the in a as prime a spot to grab power but in a very vivid moment um she is imprisoned by Ragnar uh, who is the bro- who is the adopted brother of, of Utred, the main character in the series and Brida who is uh, sort of the adopted sister of Utred, brings um an object i forget what it's called but basically it's a ram's head chopped off stuck on a, on a um on a stick and she Thrusts it in front of Skade's uh, cell door, and immediately Skade loses her powers. She's unable to control anyone anymore. She's unable, and and it's it's very it's clearly suggested in the show. Now I haven't read the book, so I'm not sure how the author um, treats this. But generally, the books skew pretty close to the uh, the movies. The, the show skews pretty close to the book. It's very clear that the possibility of of the um, Norse gods having actual if they don't exist, at least there being some sort of power there exists. Now, this, you see it again and again and again in historical literature and in particular in fantasy literature. I see it very often. Uh, For example, The Bear and the Nightingale, a wonderful fantasy set in Russia in the 15th century, I think. I haven't read it in a while. I'm about to start book two. I I wrote um, a review of it. You can find it on my website on nicholaskotar.com. It's a book that I do recommend, except that the uh, the setting, although in highly orthodox medieval Russia, seems to discount the, the reality or agency of the Christian God. He seems to be largely absent. And the only active participants on the supernatural level are the chertsi, which are, they're actually called that Chirtzi. The, the author uses the word, which means devils. And she she uses the word to indicate all of the mythological creatures that are associated with Russian mythology, all the way from the house, the hearth spirit, the mavoi, all the way to bear, uh, who is an old Slavic god of winter. <clears throat> and rather rather um, idiosyncratically, she um, uses the character of Maroska, who's just a fairy tale uh, version of Santa Claus, uh, as a kind of lord or lord of of winter, but a counterpart to the evil god of of winter, who's the bear. All of these characters have great powers. There, are, there are mermaids, um, there are vampires, um, there are all kinds of magical creatures, all of whom have magic and do all kinds of things. But the only real interaction we see with the Christian God is through the eyes of a mad monk, who is clearly in delusion. Like he thinks he he thinks he sees visions of the divine, and very soon in the middle of the book, it's made clear that actually what he's seeing is. The chitzi dressing up in images of light, so pretending to be angels and and the mother of God and, and Christ himself, and that's wh- and that's where it's left. So you have this this uh, tremendously rich time period of medieval Russia, which was, if you've read the novel *Loris* by Evgeny Vodolaskin, you you will know that that time period in that time period people were just obsessed with religion and they saw the agency of God in every single thing that happened to them. I mean, it. it it's hard for us to imagine how much they were obsessed with the presence of God in their everyday lives. If that's the time period you're choosing to write about, then why are you not at least suggesting the possibility that, especially if you're going to give agency and power to the chirti, to the, to the demons, to the mythological creatures, why are you not at least allowing the possibility that the Christian God can have agency of his own? He's completely absent. In fact, one of the characters even suggests... Um, that there is no such thing as a creator god. Uh, and this character is a character who is in the know. Um, which makes for a very weird uh, mythology and cosmology, because then where did the Chirzi come from? Are they just powers of the earth? Uh, is it all just materialism anyway? But if it is, then why do you even have the mythological element? Um, it makes it makes for, for weird reading. Uh, and in general it, it also goes very goes along very much with with a modern kind of resurgence of neo-paganism we see we've seen the a resurgence of worship of the of the Norse gods in iceland um there have been actual services to odin uh, in, in iceland uh, on social media if you if you know where to look there are people who identify themselves with with the Norse with the followers of the Norse gods um and spend most of their time talking about how great Valhalla is and how pathetic Christians are uh, um and um it, why why am i talking about this well what what is interesting or what i what kind of bothers me is that it would seem to be more interesting to consider like if we're supposed to as writers if we're told as writers that we need to give the bad guys as much motivation, character motivation, as much um, sort of life as possible, then why is it too much to to expect authors to at least consider in their fantasies the possibility that there be this battle between the forces of light and the forces of the darkness and let, let the Christian uh, mythos at least have some sort of chance. Um, I don't know, it kind of bothers me. But what I will say is that there was one book that I read recently that managed to incorporate the world of the Christians in Russia, of medieval Russia, and the world of the pagans in medieval Russia into a unified story that was nuanced, very um, subtle, very interesting, and ultimately um, I found myself moved. Uh, by by the ending of it, and I would recommend this book to anybody um, who uh, who is interested. And it's not even a novel; it's a it's a graphic novel. It's called the Green Mon- the Green Monk. Now, this is um, the author here is is uh, Brandon Dayton. Uh, he's a guy who has um, won several awards for some of his illustrations and and comics. And he published recently, uh, I think, within the last year. Basically, I think it's a sequel to an earlier um, graphic novel called called also the Green Monk. So this one's called Green Monk: The Blood of the Martyrs. It's like part two, and it's a very interesting story. It it um it explores. Um, it explores, uh, um, basically the setting is a monastery in medieval Russia. The monks are perfectly normal characters who do not have the usual and uh, the usual vices that seem to be given to all um, monastic or clerical characters in in modern um, popular culture. They're not all lusting after women or children. Uh, They're not all money-grabbing. They're not all uh, trying to control you all the time. Uh, They're not all woman-haters. In fact, they're just monks who are worried about their own salvation. And a woman comes uh, into this monastery carrying a bundle that turns out to be a child. And she's almost dead. She's walked through tremendous cold and basically her her hands and legs are frostbitten. She's extremely, uh, she's on the verge of death. And she begs with her last breath that the monks take the boy in and raise him. Uh, and it's, it, she gives the suggestion that there's some sort of evil that's hanging over him uh, that they need to protect him from. And uh, the main monk does. He says, we promise, we promise that we will raise him as a holy man. Uh, the boy uh, is raised in the monastery, he's very restless, he has violent tendencies, he tends to get in fights, but usually these fights are to protect the innocent, so not just random fights, but he does have a very violent temperament and, and a lot of strength, physical strength to him. Um, and then in a very interesting moment, he starts getting these, these visions of a goddess, uh, who is clearly mother earth in the in the russian sense she's, she's dressed in, in medieval russian clothing uh he calls her holy mother and he seems to know her and he goes through this he has his vision um which seems to have a physical component so he goes through these ordeals and he comes before her and she keeps giving him these temptations and they come in threes interestingly enough which is you know the three is is a very um uh, christian a number with christian symbolism um and she keeps she gives, gives him these these uh t- these temptations um, of power of of um, different things and he keeps saying no i must be a holy man no i must be a monk this is a a, a comic book a graphic novel it's, it's wonderful and um eventually she leaves him with no choice and she says you have to choose a weapon with which to defend the innocent and he says i'm a i'm a holy man i cannot so i i choose this blade of grass <laughs> and she says so so be it let it be as you choose and he, he wakes up and he has the sword that's basically a huge blade of grass, uh, but the size of a sword and extremely sharp and um, has magical properties and stuff like this. It's a magical sword, so it has all these great fantasy elements to it. And when he comes to, he realizes that the monastery is being attacked by, effectively, what is what looks like the Mongols, some sort of um, nomadic tribe. Um, and he goes and he uh, defends the monast- the monks... Ends up killing all, almost all of the bad guys, and I'll leave it there because I don't I don't want the, to ruin the ending uh, for you. But the ending is not at all which, what you think. It's it's very moving, uh, and uh, he doesn't reject. Well, I'm not going to say anymore. All right, you, you just have to read it. It's it's a it's a very interesting, very very good book. Now, why am I is um, uh, <laughs> so interested in this book in particular, with reference to Bernard Cornwell and, and his depiction of Christianity in the medieval times? is that there was entire, is that you can, there's no, this is a very good example of somebody not taking a side, not taking the Christian side, not taking the pagan side, just depicting historically accurate, uh, he's just depicting the reality in Russia where there are a lot of people were still pagan, even if they were officially baptized, they still had, um, affinities to their pagan past and that pagan reality was not simply something made up it was something probably with power to it otherwise why would people believe in it and that seems to be the suggestion that um, that brandon is giving it without without you know again it's a a graphic novel so there isn't a lot of subtext you basically you, you fill in the blanks on your own but the monks are people they're not caricatures the main character the young boy is a person he's not a caricature. He's got a complex character journey that he has to go through. And in the end, he kind of embraces both his pagan past and his Christian future. Again, I'm not giving away the end. It's a very moving end, which gives, by the way, it's kind of a cliffhanger. Well, sort of. It's an unresolved end that suggests there might be more books coming in the best tradition of any comic book. But ultimately, it's it's a message of hope that doesn't preach. And this is what I talk about a lot. The best kinds of books are willing to consider the power and the mystery of different points of view, even those that you don't agree with. And ultimately, what really bothered me about The Last Kingdom, the book, is, and this happens also in in uh, uh, Wolf Hall, by the way, which is a, a series of, of historical novels about the time of Henry VIII there seems to be more and more a kind of acceptance that you need not give any credence to historical Christianity that it's okay to treat it as you would a modern uh, Christian that you don't like. And what ends up happening is a bunch of caricatures and a poverty of storytelling. So, ultimately, even though I like the uh, the Last Kingdom series, the, the television series, what I like about it, ultimately, is at the end, when Alfred is finally given a chance to be not a stupid jerk, but to actually be a human being with failings, but who is willing to transcend those failings and to consider the humanity of the person opposed to him, even though that person is a pagan. And that pagan, Uhtred, can look at Alfred and see in him a human being who is worthy of respect and maybe even love. And that is beautiful, and that's the kind of thing we don't have enough of, by the way, in our daily interactions with, with other people. And certainly, we will not get anywhere nearer to understanding the points of view of other people, or any farther out of the quagmire of the political nonsense and the ideological wars that we're going through. Until we learn to see the human being on the other side, the aisle. Especially especially when that person embodies everything you hate. Because that person is still a human being. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, and you'd like to delve more deeply into this topic, check out my audio series on stories that unite in dark times. Available exclusively at nicholaskotar.com forward slash stories that unite. And if you're hankering for more fantasy stories, check out my own Raven's Son epic fantasy series, inspired by Russian fairy tales, available now in audio, paperback, and ebook formats. This show is produced by the wonderful Derek Cummins, and the beautiful title music is Lighthouse in the Rain, originally composed by Velislava Franta. You can find her work on SoundCloud.